Uh, please take your Bible and uh, turn to Job chapter 1. Uh, Mr. T, are there sufficient outlines back there? Terry, are there sufficient outlines back there? Okay, thank you. How many of you need an outline? Just slip your hand up if you want one. Okay, so maybe a half a dozen. All right. Okay, thank you. Get your programs, right? Don't know what's going on without a program. Job chapter 1. Well, last time we, uh, we jumped in and uh, introduced the book of Job, talking about some background, some geography, uh, a basic outline. And what we want to do today is actually jump into the text and... Um, we're, we're, we're gonna, not going to get too far before we have to pr- uh, kind of pull the car over uh, and talk uh, because um, right away there are things that, uh, that arise out of the text, uh, things that are worth uh, a theological stroll through the woods, if you will. Uh, so let's um, go ahead and just read the text and we'll get to those places and uh, we'll go from there. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. By the way, some of you were confused by that. You were asking about these, you know, the lion and the tin man. It, it's, it's Uz. It's, don't, don't misunderstand that. Uh, his name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And as we saw last time, that is not hyperbole. That is not uh, literary exaggeration. Uh, That is quite literally the historical significance of this man named Job. He was the richest, he was the most godly, and he was the most prominent in his day. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, verse 4. And they would send and invite three sisters, their three sisters, and eat and drink with them. And then it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. As we saw last time, uh, Job lived in the time before the law, before the formal uh, sacrificial system of Israel where the priests would have handled sacrifices and atonement offerings for sin. Uh, and in this day, uh, it was the father's job to do those things. And we see Job's care for his family and uh, how he walked with God and, and um, ministered to his family by interceding on their behalf. Verse 6, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now stop right there. Between verse 5 and verse 6, there is a scene change. If we were watching a movie, there would be some sort of uh, panning out, perhaps, of the initial scene of of, uh, Job there sitting there offering sacrifices to his family, and maybe there would be sort of a fade out and then a fade in to a brand new scene. Uh, This scene... Uh, is perhaps the scene of heaven itself where God is sitting on His throne and these sons of God are coming to present themselves before the Lord. 
Uh, just just one day, the text tells us. And, and the idea is this was something that happened on a regular basis where God would be on his throne, the sons of God would enter, and as it were, sort of report in to him. And amongst the sons of God came, the text tells us, Satan. Literally, the text reads, the Satan. There's the article there. The word the is in, is in front of it. And the Lord, verse 7 said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Does he fear God for no reason? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you. To your face. Let's stop right there. What on earth is going on here? We understand the scene of Job interceding for his kids. We can kind of relate to that, right? Ministering to his kids, interceding for God, looking out for his children, and then the scene changes, and all of a sudden, we're in an area, we're in a territory we've never ever experienced in the whole canon of Scripture. Not, not just up until, you know, from Genesis to Job. In the whole canon of the Bible, we've never seen anything like this before. And that's where you guys come in. What can we figure out from the text is going on in verse 6? What's going on? We have a big group, but this is where you participate, okay? What's that? Spiritual battle, okay. There's some spiritual battle going on. Come on, let's, let's, just, let's just take this whole text apart. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we see later on uh, uh, God has to give Satan permission. But c- can we... Can we go back to spiritual kindergarten for a little bit? Can we do that? Can we just ask some really, really simple questions? Who's Satan? Where does it say that? Oh, okay, it doesn't say that. Okay, let's start with what we know. Let's start with the text, and then we'll walk through the theological woods and see if we can figure that out, okay? Who are the sons of God? Okay. Um, let's start with what we, we know. If you were reading in the Hebrew Bible and you came to the part, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and blank came amongst them, you would read the word Satan in Hebrew. Actually, it would be Hasatan. It has uh, the article on the front. What does Satan mean? We, you understand Satan is not an English word. It's a word we borrowed from Hebrew, turned into an English word. That's where we get the word Satan. 
What does Satan mean? What does Satan mean? Adversary. Okay. It means the adversary, okay? Now, now notice, Satan in this verse, does your Bible just spell it out, Satan with a capital S? Is that what your Bible does? Mine does that. Understand, Satan is not a proper noun. It's not a name. It's a title. It means the adversary. So if you were reading this as a Hebrew reader, you would read it like this. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the adversary came also amongst them. The adversary. Okay. Who are the sons of God? One of you said angels. Uh, flip over to uh, Job 38, verse 7. Later on in the text, by the way, I'm going to warn you. Um, you might get like paper cuts and stuff like that and dry skin. We're going to flip through the Bible so much this morning. Uh, so you're welcome to just listen if you'd rather do that. Otherwise, um, try and keep up. Okay? Isaiah 30, or, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Job 38, verse 7. Uh, this is in the midst of God answering Job out of the whirlwind. We'll get to this in, in a few weeks. Um, and he's challenging Job. Verse 5, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched out the line on it? Talking about the creation of the world. Uh, on what were its bases sunk? Or on who, or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That helps us a little bit with understanding who the sons of God are. Uh, this is, it's, uh, and the parallel there is the morning stars, the sons of God, those are titles for what? For angels. That's right. And uh, here we see that the angels quite literally shouted for joy and sang together as God was creating the earth. That's pretty cool. That's another really cool scene that we see here. Okay, so the sons of God are angels by context according to how it's used elsewhere in the book. Okay? What else do we learn? I go back to Job 1. What else do we learn about Satan? J just, again, spiritual kindergarten. Okay, real simple, real basic. Uh, let, let's not draw on all of our theological knowledge just yet. Let's just look at the text and see what we can learn. What else uh, do you know about Satan? We know his name means the adversary. And we know that he came amongst some angels. Okay. Now, the text doesn't tell us he's an angel. It just says he came amongst the angels. Okay. That, that might be true, uh, but we're not going to get that from this text in particular. Just look, look back at those first few verses we read. What, just basic observations. What's that? He roams the earth. Very good. What else? Okay, uh, Sheila and then um, Ruth. Okay, he has access, we'll say to God, and, and maybe that means to heaven. Okay, I mean, the text doesn't tell us that it's heaven, but presumably that's what it is. Is that what you were going to say, Ruth? Okay, someone else. Very good. Yes, Rusty.
That's a really good question. What does it mean by the adversary? Right, exactly. Exactly. And, and that's a question that we're going to have to answer. Because you're right. Uh, why the article? If he just said, and an adversary came amongst him. But the little word the does something different. This is significant. Uh, you know, if we said, uh, you know, an enemy is coming, we'd say, okay. If we said the enemy is coming, we'd say, oh, wow, this is, this is a little more serious, right? Okay. Okay. Right. That's right. Okay. Very good. Someone else. Yes, Bill. Okay. That's true. Who is he? Who is he prosecuting in this text? He's prosecuting God. Very good. Uh, I'm going to say it like this. He is accusing God. Okay, And that's part of what goes back to Rusty's question. Why is he the adversary? Because right out of the gate we read here, this guy is accusing God of wrongdoing. What is he accusing God of doing? What, what, what's the accusation? Okay, well, he's not accusing God of protecting. He, he's saying that, but what is... What is the actual accusation? Yes, Okay, someone else? Okay. Okay, and because he's protecting him, what's the accusation? He's buying his favor. Do you see that? Look, look back at the text here. Okay, uh, the, the verse that you guys have mentioned, verse 10, have you not made a hedge of protection about him? You've blessed all that he has. You've guarded his family, guarded his house. And here comes the challenge, okay? And, and, and this, this, is, this is reminiscent of Eden. It's so subtle. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. Job only worships you because you've made his life so good. Buying worshipers. I like that. Um, and the accusation is, God, people only worship you when you give them all sorts of stuff, all sorts of blessings. You make their life go well. And then the accusation comes, but watch this. If you remove all those things, you remove all the blessings, remove the hedge, uh, remove the family, remove the possessions, you're going to see Job's true colors then. You're going to see that he will, and the, the Hebrew text is emphatic, he will surely curse you to your face. And and that, uh, we're not going to talk about this today. Uh, I mentioned this in, in my sermon a few weeks ago. That is one of the huge, huge theological questions that this this book asks of the reader. Why do you worship God? Why do we worship God? It's easy to praise Him, to thank Him, to walk with Him, and, oh, yeah, me and God are great when life is good, right? 
But what this book is saying is that it takes sometimes the removal of those blessings for us to see why we really worship God. In fact, we we can say it even stronger. We probably do not have a clear assessment of our own hearts until God removes some of his blessings. But but isn't it odd that, that whoever this guy is, he is accusing God. I mean, this is the creator of the universe. This is the sovereign. This is God. And this creature, whoever he is, comes right in, sticks his finger in the nose of the creator and says, you know what, you're up to something no good. That, do you see how outlandish that is? It is. He does it in public, right? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, as uh, Brenda said, uh, I think he's been roaming about on the earth. First Peter five eight says that the devil roams around like a what? Seeking whom he can devour. Okay. Now we're starting to put some things together here. But he's roaming about on the earth. Notice. The text seemed to imply he doesn't belong in the throne room. Where does he belong? He belongs on the earth. Okay. What else? None of you said this, but or at least that I heard, but God draws the adversary's attention to Job. I mean, Satan just walks in, the sons of God just walk in, and it's not like Satan comes up and says, okay, God, I got something I want to talk to you about. God takes the initiative. And that, that's, an, that's another interpretive key, and it's also very, very troubling if you think about it. Okay, Because it, it's easy to think, well, yeah, the bad stuff that happens in my life is because of Satan and all that, but you know, God would never want that to happen. That's not good theology. Um, God draws the adversary's attention to Job. And, and, and here's why I say that's an interpretive key. A huge part of this book has nothing to do with Job. It has nothing to do with Job. It is about God publicly showing that Satan is a liar. It is about God showing Satan and all of his angels that he's wrong. That he's a phony and a fake. And his take on life is absolutely, positively a lie. And one of the things that this book is going to do, it is, it is going to glorify and honor and hold up the name of God, the rightness of God, the truth of God, right in the face of the devil himself. He's just going to use Job to do that, in part. And if we don't miss it, we we just kind of gloss over that. God's the one who starts all this. It's not Satan coming and accusing. His accusation is a response uh, to God getting in his kitchen about it. And then we see the adversary challenge God. We saw that. Now let's go on here, okay, now that we've we've, uh, assessed a little bit of the text here. 
Uh, look at verse uh, 12. Then the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand to touch him. Think about, think about the weight that is exchanged in that verse. God says to the adversary, everything he has is in your power. Everything. But don't put your hand on him. Okay? You have power over everything he has, everything in his life. You can't touch him. And Satan departs from the presence of the Lord. I remember listening to Steve Lawson preach this at the Shepherds Conference a couple of years ago. Uh, he actually wrote a commentary in the book of Job. And um, verse 12, how can Satan be in God's presence? You want to call your dad on that one, Terry? <laughs> yeah, we'll get, tell him to get, get back to us later this week. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I think in part um, what we're supposed to get is that Satan, even though he is opposed to God, even though in a sense he cannot be in the holiness of God, uh, he is totally and 100% accountable to God. God holds him to that. Now, now look what happens. Look at verse 13. We didn't read this yet. Now it happened on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking Verse 13, wine in their oldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They were some guys that lived to the east. And they also slew the serpents with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came in and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. That's a Hebrew way of saying lightning and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, Your kids. You ever gotten a phone call like that? It starts with, your son, your daughter, your kids. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In the span of just a few minutes, Job lost everything in his life. Um, you know, I, are you reading Job, by the way? You, you started reading Job? Some of you need to repent and start reading Job. Um, it's worth... I don't, I don't know that we can connect with this book unless we spend some time thinking about how hard that must have been for him. Lost all his kids, lost all his livelihood, all his animals, all his stuff. Um, everything that was important to him, he lost. And we see 
Notice the two perspectives. We see the courtroom scene where God gives him permission, and then we see just what Satan is able to do in the life. The adversary has power, though it must be permitted by God. Um, Satan could not do anything that God did not permit. That's an underlining statement in, in our study. Satan cannot do anything that God does not permit. Uh, this is not God. God is not. Um, you know, this is not like the force. Okay, there's a light side and a dark side, and they duke it out with lightsabers. That's that's not the picture here. This is not the God of Taoism, where there's a yin and there's a yang. There's a good. There's an evil. Um, you know, in this corner is the good creator of the universe, God, and in this quarter, the arch enemy, the rival, the the evil Satan, and and, and that's not the picture at all. There is one God. And Satan is totally, totally uh, underneath and submissive to God's permissive will. But that doesn't mean that his power is not significant. Look at this with me. He has power to use and influence people. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans in our story. Satan can and does use people every day. Um, he also has power to use the weather. Did you catch that? The fire of God from heaven. That, that's lightning. And then later on, uh, the wind. A great um, In this part of the uh, culture, there were these really tornadoes that came out of um, the plains of the desert, uh, much like the Midwest. And uh, that's what happened. A tornado came and took out this house and killed all his kids. Does that just happen? No. That was, according to this verse, properly interpreted. That was Satan's doing. He has power over people. He has power over weather. Look at this. He also has power to use sickness and disease. Um, we're going to see that later on uh, in, um, in Job chapter 2. We haven't gotten quite there yet. Um, but Satan is going to afflict Job with this skin disease. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that a pretty powerful guy? Is this someone, is, is Satan someone who we can just sort of write off in our experience? You know, evangelicals, the, 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 the movement that our church grew out of, okay, the Bible churches and all that, uh, tend toward two extremes when it comes to Satan. Uh, one is we um, ignore him. And, you know, we talk about him and, oh, yeah, there's Satan. And, but, but, I mean, for all practical purposes, we really don't deal with him. We really don't talk about him much. We don't think about him. And then the other extreme is, you know, Satan is the reason for all of my problems, Right? You know, my children don't disobey. Well, you know, it's Satan. And, and or my children don't obey. They, they have no trouble disobeying. Um, they don't obey. Uh, that's Satan. You know, my mother-in-law gets sick. That's Satan. My, uh, you know, my house floods. Well, that's Satan. You know, Satan is the explanation to everything. And that's just, frankly, giving him way too much credit than Scripture gives him. But one of the things I, I, I want to do in this class is to try to strike a balance between those two extremes. What I trust is the biblical perspective. Um, Satan is real. He has huge, real power. And some of the things, okay, listen, 
some of the things that happen in our lives are because of his work. Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. Accor- according to how it plays out here, he has nothing and has to go get permission for, for each incident. But I, I don't know that the answer to that is so crucial because the theological point is God has to give him permission one way or another. Whether it's granted first and then he restrains it or whether he restrains it and then it's granted, it still is is coming from God. Rich? Yes, that's true. Very good. Yeah, well, I, I've heard theologians say, you know, angels aren't omnipresent, they're not omniscient, but they're really fast and they're really smart. Okay? Now, now let me ask you... How, Let's see, how many of you have been married here for more than 20 years? Okay, 25 years. 30 years? 35? 40? Okay, James wins the prize today, okay? Um, Very good, very good. Yes. Yeah, The, the one that's wifeless today wins the prize, right? Um, my suspicion is that James and Glenda know each other very, very, very well because they've lived together for over 40 years. Okay? And if you've been married to your spouse for a significant amount of time, you know that person very, very, very well. Um, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything like God does. But you know what? You can learn a lot about a person just by paying attention to them. You can learn a lot about a person's habits, their wants, their desires, their tendencies, uh, what tempts them, what doesn't tempt them, uh, what, what sets them off, what's no big deal to them. You can learn a lot about a person if you just pay attention. And if we can do that on a human level, I'd say the angels are very, very good at it if they want to be, right? Sheila. Right. He does. Yeah, that's that's a good. Uh, uh, and the way you said it, and what you said is absolutely right. God already knows. Um, you know, whenever I read verses like this, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, when I when I see Alan grab a toy from Amy, I see that, and then I call him over and and I ask him, "What did you just do? Right? What what am I doing there?" I'm, I'm drawing him out, aren't I? Okay, I'm, I'm initiating... I already know what happened, but I'm drawing him into the conversation. Okay, and I, I would suspect that that's what God is doing, something along those lines there. Yeah. 
That, yeah, that's, that's true, although the repetition in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the way it's written makes this sound like this was a regular thing, that, that the angels and Satan regularly report in to God, and God regularly is asking Satan, what are you doing? Um, so, so, yeah, that's true. He, he is drawing him in for the sake of the conversation he's going to have. But the text seemed in, seems to indicate that this, this was a normal thing that happened. So, I think um, he wants them to acknowledge what they're doing. Their role is their dominion and authority right. over parts of the earth. In fact, this is something mm-hmm. angels do. Right. They, they uh, have dominion. And that little phrase that said roaming uh, to and fro around mm-hmm. the earth right. is kind of a Correct. Because in, in Zechariah, uh, the angels uh, come in Zechariah chapter 1. Mm-hmm. The man in the myrtle says that these are the ones who the Lord has sent to walk to and fro across right. the earth. Right. So yep. that's showing. Very good. So it's, a, it's an indication of their dominion over the earth. Right. Absolutely. Cece. I was just, the precepts are good. Matthew. Yeah. That's true in the temptation. Right. Right. That's neat. And speaking of Matthew, um, there are four places in the whole Bible where we hear Satan speak. Do you know what they are? Genesis 3. That's one. Job 1 and 2, that's 2 and 3, and the temptation, and Matthew, and then the parallels in Mark and Luke. Okay, Only time we hear him speak, and, and there's striking uh, parallelism that goes on there. Okay? Let's, uh, let's move on. You, you, you okay? You tracking? Okay. Uh, let's look at this for a second. I put this in your notes just so that you'd have it. I borrowed this from uh, Terry's dad, uh, Paul Enns, his book, The Moody Handbook of Theology. Um, I, one of the things I love about his dad's book, if you don't have that, uh, is he's got all these charts. And I'm a chart guy. I love, I mean, I'd wallpaper my room with charts if I could. And, um, and whiteboards. Um, uh, so this is just a little chart here that overviews the names of Satan in Scripture and the references. And the cool thing I like about this is it's not just the name and where it is. He gives you a meaning. What's the significance of the name in terms of you know, what it means? The adversary, we learned that. The devil, uh, diabolos, means slanderer. Evil one shows that he's intrinsically evil. The red dragon of Revelation is that he's destructive. The serpent of old references his uh, deceptiveness in Eden. Uh, Abandon and Apollyon, uh, destruction and destroyer. Uh, the accuser, we'll see, one who brings a charge. Beelzebul means the Lord of the fly. Uh, no reference to uh, uh, William Golding there, but uh, perhaps Golding was borrowing from Scripture. I don't know. Uh, Belial means worthless. Uh, God of this world, this goes back to what uh, Gary was saying, his dominion is over the world, is over the earth. He is the ruler of this world. He rules the world system. It's interesting, the philosophy of the world. 
Um, that's, that's where Satan really gets his power. He gets his power by influencing the ideas and worldviews of the, of the culture. That's, that's another sermon for another day, but uh, that name indicates that. Enemy just means the opponent. Prince of the power of the air emphasizes his control over unbelievers. Second uh, Corinthians says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see and respond to the light of the gospel. He is the tempter. He solicits people to sin. Uh, back to what Cece was saying a minute ago, he's a murderer. Uh, J- uh, Jesus said he's a murderer from the beginning because he led people to eternal death. He was the guy that started all that. He is a liar. Uh, he perverts the truth. And uh, the term accuser, it's actually a different word in Greek. That's why Dr. Enns included it twice in Revelation 12 there. Uh, but that's just a little chart you can have if you don't have his book. Um, I, I made a couple of little changes there, but... Um, that's helpful for kind of getting an overview of who Satan is. Now, now, you, d- did you notice the um, ridiculously optimistic outline I gave you? Did you notice that? Uh, I wanted you to have that, and I left a lot of the blanks filled in because um, uh, I want you to spend some time this week kind of going over this as we... Uh, um, we, we have a few more minutes here yet, but um, so you have... I know you're going to have 100 questions stopping midstream here. So you have all those notes and you can bring them back next time. Where did Satan come from? This is kind of the $100 question. Um, Genesis 1.31, God steps back at the end of day six as the sun is going down and he looks at his creation in the creation week, day six, and what does he say? Tov ma'od. It's very good. Okay. It is very good. And then you've got chapter 2, which is the expansion on the creation of Adam and Eve. It goes back to chapter 1. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent shows up accusing God, questioning God. What does that sound like? Sounds like Job 1 and 2, doesn't it? And we have to ask the question, how did we go from creation being very good to there's this creature running around accusing the God of the universe of wrongdoing? Well, let's, um, let's just wander through this. We'll see how far we get. Where did Satan come from? What do you think? By the way, do you know how many Bible-believing evangelical Christians believe in Satan? 26%. 2008, George Barna did a poll. Uh, only 26% of evangelicals, and you got to watch his definition because he's kind of loosey-goosey on that, but, you know, Bible-believing, professing evangelicals believe strongly in the existence of a personal devil. 26%. How do you think that, if that's true... Um, How do you think that plays out in the church and in people's lives? I mean, let's just say we went over to Afghanistan where some of our friends and family are fighting. And they just said, you know what? We're not convinced this Taliban really exists. So we're going to put our guns down. We're going to take our tanks home. Fly our planes back to the carrier. um, Take our uniforms off. 
There's no threat, right? How would that go? That would not be a good day in the war, would it? The day that we declare there is no enemy. And I would, I would suggest to you that three-quarters of the evangelical world not taking Satan seriously is a huge, huge problem. So where did he come from? Probably an angel, a created being. Now, when were angels created? Well, let's pray. We are there. Um, well, okay, I've given you enough information to put it together. If Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, and that is an absolute beginning, which is my understanding of that verse, and Job 38-7 says that as God was laying the foundations of the earth, who was shouting for joy? Who, who was in the, the celestial grandstand saying, oh, this is great, this is wonderful, praise him. Who, who was doing that? The angels were. The sons of God, the, the, mor- the stars, um, what, do you, what do you say? The morning stars. Okay? So what that means, I was tempted to give you a chart. The angels were created as part of the heavens. That, that was their original abode. Um, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And most likely the angels were part of the heavens. Okay. Angels are ministering spirits who can sometimes take on bodily form. Like in Genesis 19, when the angels show up uh, to see Lot, and we see examples in Scripture, Gabriel we see assuming bodily form. When Jesus was born, the uh, angels came to the shepherds. They were in bodily form. Uh, but but the scripture tells us elsewhere that they are ministering spirits who can sometimes take on bodies. Interestingly, um, if you if you go to most um, Christian bookstores and and you look for little angel statues, um, a lot of them look like girls. And actually, historically, I mean, I've got I've got a stack of kids Bible stories. At home, on, on Alan and Amy and Eric's shelves that we read to them sometimes, almost always the angels look like girls. Do you know in Scripture that never happens? They're, they, if, if they appear in bodily form, they always look like a man. So I don't know where the girl thing came up with. But. Okay, they're, they're ministering spirits. They're of a higher order than humans. We saw that. I preached on Hebrews 2 back at Christmas time. And um, remember, Jesus is God, and yet he's made what? lower than the angels. So God, angels, people would be the hierarchy in terms of power and prestige and intelligence. And they're of a higher order than humans, according to Hebrews 2.7. There are countless numbers of angels, Revelation says, myriad upon myriad, tens of thousands of tens of thousands. Um, I asked Alan and Amy the other night what that meant, and Amy said, Daddy, that means there's a lot of angels. That's exactly what it means. The idea is you can't count them. And here's where it gets a little sticky. Okay? Satan apparently led a revolt in heaven against God. God judged him, and one-third of the angels, sending them out of heaven, 
to the earth. Oh, this is going to be a great place to stop. Turn back to Revelation chapter 12, please. Let's start. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, rules of Bible interpretation is we start with the easier verses to interpret, and then we work toward the more difficult verses to interpret. Okay? So we're going to start with the easier verses, and we'll come back next time and look at some of the harder verses. Revelation chapter 12, uh, and again, it's, it's almost unfair just to parachute into Revelation 12 and just start telling you what things mean because there's a context here. Uh, this is in the context of uh, uh, the judgments and particularly the seventh trumpet, if you remember what that means um, in, in the playing out of the book of Revelation. And um, we'll, we'll come back to this and, and do a little more justice to the context. But here's what I want you to see for our time today. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and a moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Who does that woman represent? Do you know? Israel. 12 stars meaning the 12 tribes. Very good. Okay. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor, in pain to give birth. Okay. We'll find out later on that the child is the Messiah. Okay, since Jesus comes from the family of Israel. Okay, look at verse three. Now another sign appears. John writes in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. Okay, now this is a different scene, a different time. This, you know, verses three and four are designed to give us some background on who the red dragon is of verses one and two, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And uh, we'll stop right there, okay? Most commentators take that to mean the stars, as we've seen before, are another title, another metaphor for angels, that this is Satan, and something happens in heaven, and he and a third of the angels, a third of the stars, are thrown down to the earth, which explains why uh, later on we see that this is Satan's abode. This is, his, this is his world, if you will. He was created in heaven. He was sent to earth and was given at least some dominion over the earth. Um, and so that, that's usually, you say, this is the easier verse to interpret? Yeah, it is. Um, something happened and God sent the dragon and a third of the stars out of heaven to the earth. Okay? Yes, Jan. Oh, that's a really good question. I'll throw this up here before we leave. If angels were created on chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis, very good, right? And they were present to see the foundations of the earth in the latter part of that verse. And chapter 3, verse 1 says Satan's already on the earth tempting Adam and Eve. Here's our conclusion. He fell sometime after day 6 of creation when God says it's very good and before the events of Genesis 3, 1. Does that make sense? It's got to happen before chapter 3, verse 1, but after God's saying it's very good on day 6. Daryl, uh, last question before we quit.
Uh, that's a really good question. If I understand you, you're asking, can Satan, or I'm sorry, can angels take on bodily form even today after Christ? Is that, that's what you're saying? <clears throat> uh, we know, we know because of some of the things Revelation tells us that they can take on bodily form in the future. Now, does that mean they can right now? There's nothing that says they can't. Um, but uh, there's no specific references that say they do. So I, I would say it's it's certainly possible, and we know that they will indeed in the future. Yeah. Okay, well, as I do in council time, we have to stop right there. And all the kids go, oh. Um, I want you to look over these notes. Uh, this this is not this is not easy theolo- uh, theology to to understand. So uh, look over those notes. You might want to spend some time with your spouse or your kids, just kind of talking through this sort of thing. And we'll pick it up next week. Come back with your questions. Uh, let me pray for us.